2: You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with L.D. and T.J. Can you dig that, baby?
0: (laughs) Hey, guys. Welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, L.D., along with me for the ride, as always, is T.J. Oh, hey. Hey, T.J., so I just saw... (laughs) Okay, you're going to have to post them on Instagram because it's super cute. But you took your dogs to go see Santa? Well, you took Hank to go see Santa? I did right before this. They had, uh, well, I took him for training, and
1: the trainers, they also do like a little rescue stuff. And so, for financial support, I guess, like as a promotional thing and fundraiser, they had Santa. Where you could come and bring your pups up for a $5 donation and get Aww. their picture taken with
0: Santa. It's really cute. So after training, we went in for four pictures. Very nice. They're <laughs> so cute? Yeah, while well, uh, you were doing that, I was watching Knives Out. Nice. What? A, you know what? I went into public last night. I went to two parties last night. I'm so proud of you. And saw a movie. Wow. And, yeah. But uh, Knives Out is just a charming film. I really, it was fun. It was enjoyable. The only thing that I, and this is not a spoiler. You can see this in the trailer. Daniel Craig has this, like, Louisiana swamp accent. And the whole, every time he talked, I was just like, stop talking. Just be Daniel Craig.
1: <laughs> I heard that, too, actually, that it was not, like, people did not want to hear him do that accent. But
0: his car- his overall the movie
1: was good, though, so.
0: Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It's not going to change your life, but it is a great caper film. Like it's a great, it's a great whodunit film. So yeah, I heard. I heard it was like a clue, clue for the modern age. Apparently, and I just found this out when we were watching it. Was this was they they wanted to make Clue again, but they wouldn't let them. So Ryan Johnson like created his own version of Clue. I'm kind of glad that fi- somebody finally was like, no,
1: yes. enough <laughs> remakes of perfectly classic, good movies.
0: Yeah, I was watching that thing you do, and I'm like, please don't remake this film. I'm sure you saw that on Facebook. It's just don't remake... Well, there's just so many that they're trying to remake, and some of them aren't even that old. The only thing I think, the only time that you should remake a film is when the director was limited to what he could do at the time, like technology hadn't caught up to their vision yet, or you can bring something new to the table. Like, I would... Event Horizon is one of my favorite films of all time. I love that movie, but I would be okay with a remake because I feel like I feel like it, The production was rushed. There was a lot of things that were missing, and if they brought in the same script, I think it would work. So I I would be totally fine with that being. But like Scarface does not need to be remade. And don't before anybody asks me. Yeah, I know it was a remake before, but sometimes. But it doesn't need to be remade again. It does not. And I love Diego Luna who's stepping into the Tony Montana character. But it doesn't need we don't need it. We don't need that to happen. Bring new scripts to Hollywood. You know who, uh, who know you know who gets all their stuff redone constantly? The Beatles. Hey. Which is my segue (laughs) into the episode. There you go. So we're going to finish up the story of John Lennon today. If you haven't checked out episode one where we talk about his time within the Beatles, go check that out so you understand kind of what's happening and what direction he's moving into at this point in his career. But I actually kind of wanted to jump back uh, because we ended in 1970. But I want to jump back to 1968 because I found an article that was so bananas I had to share this with you all right (laughs) just because we were talking about how weird yoko and john were we're going to jump back to 1968 before they officially broke up but i found the story and it was too weird to not share as part of an underground christmas party which happened to take place at the royal albert hall which if you have watched any of the like pbs staged performances of musicals typically it happens at the royal albert hall they did uh, Phantom of the Opera. They did Mes, They did Riverdance. So. All right. And that's in London, of course. And John and Yoko appeared on stage inside a large white bag. The event was held by the Arts Lab, which attempted to challenge audiences and encourage them to become an active participant rather than a passive consumer. The couple's 30-minute conceptual performance was titled... The alchemy wedding. The bag was, they explained, to ensure total communication with the audience. The following year, the concept was reintroduced by the pair as bagism, an attempt to satirize, prejudice, and stereotyping. They sat on the stage, and as poets and musicians performed at the event, they would come in, they would crawl into the bag, and a guy would play the flute. And they moved only twice during the performance— and they just kind of laid on the floor while a guy was like on the, the side. That's so weird. I know. So sixties, man. So they people paid to go to a theater and watch John Lennon and Yoko Ono crawl into a bag and move like twice while there was a guy playing a flute and some poetry happening. Uh, t- uh, t- I got nothing. <laughs> During the performance, a protester actually ran on stage holding a banner about the British and government's involvement in the Nigerian Civil War that said, Do you care, John Lennon? Do you care? And then he yelled at the couple. And I'm not sure if that was part of the performance or not. At this point, it could be. It could have been. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And though he had left the Beatles behind, he did not abandon music in 1970. Here's something else. Lennon and Ono went through primal therapy with Arthur Janov in Los Angeles. It was designed to release emotional pain from early childhood. And the therapy entitled two and a half days a week with Janov for four months. He actually wanted to treat them longer, but they didn't feel like they needed to continue. And they returned to London. And I think basically it just means screaming. I can actually see that potentially working. I don't know if you've heard about
1: this or if I've told you about this, because I really uh, was very interested in this and may try it at some point. But there is a, a trend out there, a new form of yoga coming to the table called rage yoga. I've seen YouTube videos on this. And I'm, I'm super curious about it. I'm very interested because instead of it being like zen and, I mean, let's face it. I like yoga and everything, but it's a little out there sometimes. Bougie. Yeah, it can be. It can be basic and down to earth and helpful, but it also can be very bougie. And there's only a billion forms of like the goat yoga and hot yoga, hot yoga, and happy hour yoga, where they actually do the yoga at like a brewery or something <laughs> while you're. <laughs> But so the rage yoga kind of has a drinking factor sometimes, but it's like they're playing metal and you're like primal
0: screaming
1: and like getting out your rage and your stress and your anxiety through this. And
0: I can see how it's that not, would really help because sometimes you just want to scream.
1: Oh, yeah. Sometimes you just need to scream. And at least that gives you an appropriate outlet of like, oh, I'm supposed to scream here. Ah,
0: yeah. So, Lennon's debut solo album, John Lennon slash Plastic Ono Band, it was received with praise by many critics, but its highly personal lyrics and stark sound limited its commercial performance. Critic Grielle Marcus remarked, John's singing in the last verse of God may be the finest in all rock. The album features songs... Like Mother, which Lennon confronted his feelings of childhood rejection, which included the lyrics, Mother, you had me, but I never had you. I wanted you, but you didn't want me. So I got to tell you goodbye. Goodbye. And the Dylan-esque working class hero, a bitter attack against the bourgeoisie social system, which is due to the lyric, you're still effing peasants fell foul of broadcasters. So I could see like fell foul of broadcasters. So I can see why it wouldn't have much commercial appeal because you can't play that stuff on the radio. Right. Which cuts out your audience by a lot. There's, I mean, you just can't. It was the same thing that Queen encountered with Bohemian Rhapsody was would that have commercial appeal being, you know, seven minutes long.
1: Right. I mean, honestly, though, it's open. It opened a lot of doors and things got longer. In, in that time frame. But also, I don't know, Pearl Jam made it work for them. They couldn't really get a lot of radio play because their lyrics were too dark and naughty.
0: Yeah, but Derek, Jeremy did end up getting a lot of radio play when Jeremy I was Jeremy did. Up. I was surprised. Yeah, yeah which, I mean, the, the theme of that is just super dark, but... Yeah. Uh, in January 1971, Tariq Ali expressed his revolutionary political views when he interviewed Lenin, who immediately responded by writing Power to the People. In his lyrics to the song, Lennon revised the non-confrontational approach he had espoused in revolution. Although he later disowned power to the people, saying it was born out of guilt and a desire for approval from such radicals as Ali, Lennon became involved with Ali in a protest against the persecution of Oz magazine for alleged obscenity. Lennon denounced the proceedings as disgusting fascism, and he and Ono, as Elastic Oz Band, released the single God Save Us slash, Do the odds and joined Marches in support of the magazine. So you can actually see now that he's blending his activism and music together. He's becoming I think I think he's actually okay with being less commercial because he's now saying what he wants to say and talking about what he wants to talk about. Well,
1: and he had a huge career on the commercial end too. I think that for a lot of artists there comes a point where it's like, okay. I'm not as concerned in this moment at being super commercial as long as I can say my piece regarding this. Especially that time... That time frame was very highly charged, very political time, so... Oh, yeah,
0: and you have... This is when you have people like, you know, Sam Cooke doing a change is going to come, and there are the marches, and, there you know, all of this is happening. The 60s and early 70s were that political... The big political push. And just because he's doing... His political stuff, he does know that he needs to be more commercial to open himself up to a wider audience. And so that's actually reflected in what I'm about to talk about this time. He actually adopted a more accessible sound for his next album, Imagine, which is, I mean, I know that you don't like the Beatles, but you cannot deny the cultural impact of Imagine. Imagine wasn't the Beatles. Imagine was John Lennon. So do you like John Lennon? I'm confused. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't... I
1: Honestly, I think the only John Lennon song I probably know is Imagine, which, you know, is fine. Mm. Okay. It Definitely, the impact and the message is strong, so I appreciate
0: what he did there. Yeah. Rolling Stone reported that it contains a substantial portion of good music, but warned of the possibility that his posturing will soon seem not merely dull, but irrelevant. The album's title track later became an anthem for the anti-war movements, while the song "Had You Sleep was a musical attack on McCartney in response to lyrics on Ram that Lennon felt McCartney had later confirmed were directed at him and Ono. So, I mean, like, even back then, they were kind of making diss tracks. Well, yeah.
1: (laughs) As long as... This has been a business. They've had diss tracks. <laughs> like, come on. I Somebody's think- gonna Because you can't not. If you're an artist that also writes your own music, you can't not let the things that are in your life be reflected within within that. So you're always gonna have, you know, people trash talk sometimes Taylor Swift or make fun of her for, you know, all her albums basically being odes to ex-boyfriends but that's the whole thing is that as a writer you write what you know you write what you experience and that usually those things tend to be highly emotionally charged and that's what tends to fuel your writing and your music yeah so you can't not write a disc track once in a while where you know yeah it's about it might have been about McCartney but Again, that was something that he was going through at that time when he would have written that song. So there you go, you know.
0: And funny enough, in March, we're actually going to be doing a short set on diss tracks because in March we are talking about Biggie and Tupac. So, yeah, in Jealous Guy, uh, Lennon addressed his demeaning treatment of women, acknowledging that his past behavior was a result of long-held insecurity and Imagine would become the most commercially successful and critically acclaimed of all Lennon's post-Beatle efforts. The title track was later named number three on Rolling Stones magazine's all-time best songs. In gratitude for his guitar contributions in Imagine, Lennon initially agreed to perform at Harrison's concert, which... That's George Harrison, uh, his Bangladesh benefit show in New York. Harrison refused to allow Ono to participate at the concert, however, which resulted in the couple having a heated argument and Lennon pulling out of the event.
1: I mean, from this, it doesn't I don't know why there's so much venom for Yoko when it sounds like it was that other guy that really kind of Klein. Yeah, that's what I thought. My initial instinct was that it was his name was Klein, but I couldn't remember. So I just said the other guy. Yeah. When it just seems like Klein was the one that kind of drove that final nail in the
0: coffin, less so than Yoko. Let me speculate for just a minute, so don't get angry, because of course this is just me speculating. I assume that they, because the Beatles came together and had a strong stance on Klein, whether or not they trusted him, like the three did, or if they had distrust, like... Paul did, but that was a personal choice they made. Whereas John brought in Yoko and no one had a choice on that. I see. Okay. So they had to have a scapegoat because they made that choice. They made the choice for Klein or made the choice against him, but no one had any say about Yoko. I see. But again, speculation. speculation. All right. Um, so something cool about the uh piano that he wrote the song Imagine on is actually on exhibit in the artist gallery of musical instruments in Phoenix, Arizona. So would you say that's a fun fact? I would say that's a fun fact. However, I end the episode with fun facts because the ending is just depressing. Um also, did you know that the same piano to write the Beatles Hey Jude is the exact same piano that Freddie Mercury wrote Bohemian Rhapsody on? Fun fact <laughs> I like it. I, that wasn't in the episode. I just, I never threw that into any of the, like, early Beatles stuff or the Freddie stuff. So, I was like, this is a great place to just drop this in. It's a good spot. Yeah. Lennon and Ono moved to New York in August 1971 and immediately embraced the U.S. radical left politics. The couple released their Happy Xmas War is Over single in December. And during the new year, the Nixon administration took what was called a strategic countermeasure against Lenin's anti-war and anti-Nixon propaganda— so uh hopping back to Lennon, the administration embarked on what would be a four year attempt to deport him. <laughs> Lennon was embroiled in a continuing legal battle with the immigration authorities and he was denied permanent residency in the US. The issue would not be resolved until nineteen seventy six. We will get to that. On december tenth, nineteen seventy one, a rally was held in Ann Arbor, Michigan to raise awareness for the hey! cause. Hey. Hey. Sorry. How far away is that from you? It was, it was the neighboring town over oh, that's from, awesome. from where I grew up. So they were trying to raise awareness for the cause of John Sinclair, a poet, activist, and music manager who had received a 10-year prison sentence for giving two marijuana joints to an, an undercover narcotics officer in 1969. 15,000 young people showed up for speeches and musical performances and to chant, Free John. Free John. As Sinclair was a founding member of the White Panther Party, which I didn't know was a thing until I read this. I've never heard of that either. Yeah. It's a militant counterpart of the Black Panthers. And he was on the radar of law enforcement and the FBI secretly monitored the rally to see who made an appearance. The Freedom Rally turned into a greatest hits of the radical movement. Speakers included Jerry Rubin, Bobby Seale, Allen Ginsberg, and Ed Sanders. And as for the musicians, it was, it might have seemed more like the rally already drew pretty exciting talent, which was Stevie Wonder, Bob Seger, and a ton of other people. But there was the most famous couple in the world at the time, which was John and Yoko. The New York Times reported John Lennon, a former Beatle, and his wife, Yoko Ono, flew from New York and appeared for 10 minutes at about 3 a.m. when the arena was filled with a cloud of marijuana smoke coming from a thousand marijuana cigarettes that were passed from person to person. Every time I read that, I'm like, my goodness, surely he's got a marijuana cigarette. (laughs) Well, it was
1: a long time ago. They wear marijuana cigarettes.
0: You know what marijuana cigarettes do to kids, right? Nope. They'll be all manner of criminal. Of what? All manner of criminal. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just like doing that voice. Clearly. I should be a 1930s radio announcer. Watch out for that Hitler, kids. He's a bad egg. It was Mr. Lennon's first major public appearance in the United States in two years. He performed several new numbers, one dedicated to the Attica Rebellion. Attica! 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 Attica. Attica. (laughs) And the other to the struggling Northern Ireland. Uh, And I think I get to this, the Bloody Sunday. Yeah. Uh, Oh, man. The last number, which brought wild applause, was a song that was dedicated to Sinclair. Sinclair was released from prison within days, but unbeknownst to Lennon, the FBI took particular note of his remarks and his singing. It was essentially the beginning of the American government's involvement in Lennon's life, wrote the website Ultimate Classic Rock. Not only did the FBI put Lennon under surveillance, that was just the beginning. There was a steady, aggressive effort to deport Lennon from the United States. And, yeah, an initiative that reportedly... Had the approval of Richard Nixon over the next five years, the U.S. gathered the the FBI gathered some three hundred pages of information on John Lennon. The FBI released a heavily blacked out or redacted pages of the Lennon FBI files, including one that was in response to John Ware's Freedom of Information request. If you if you get stuff from from what I understand, if you get stuff from like the Freedom of Information Act, they don't give you like the clean versions with like all the information on it, it's heavily redacted. Oh, yeah. So it's like, if you look at the pictures from one of these guys, he requested the FBI files on Lennon, it looks like you can maybe read, like, every six words because it's just all blacked out. You get words like
1: the, and, if. (laughs) Lennon. When. (laughs) Lennon. Went.
0: (laughs) And that was it. Yeah, but you can, <laughs> you can actually find copies of it online. So it was actually really interesting to see how much information you could get. Uh, Yoko, who was going through a custody dispute with her first husband, did not want to leave the U.S. So Lennon actually struggled to remain in the country for her, which I think is really cool. Well, yeah. So after, spoiler alert, after Lennon was killed by Mark David Chapman in 80, a historian and university professor, John Weiner spent 14 years, Fighting to get the FBI to release its files on Lenin under the Freedom of Information Act, Wiener hired ACLU lawyers, and the team preserved pro bono in their efforts to attain those files. Uh, Wiener's eventual book, making use of what he obtained, Give Me Some Truth, the John Lennon FBI Files, reveals that President Nixon was worried that Lennon could hurt his chances of re-election. You know, we're not political on this show. I sense a but coming. But... (laughs) <laughs> four years ago i would have said this without a hint of irony in my voice but could you imagine a president that was so concerned with the thoughts and actions of a pop star that he went to this much trouble to bring him down and now i know <laughs> and now i have my answer anyway moving on a subsequent version was released which showed much more of the previously blacked out text the 72 election was going to be the first in which 18-year-olds had the right to vote. Weiner said in an NPR interview in 2000, before that you had to be 21. Everybody knew that young people were strong anti-war. And so the question for Lennon was, how could he use his power as a celebrity to get the young people to get into the political process? So he was trying to make an effort. Lennon was actually quite interested in becoming a part of such a youth group movement opposing the Vietnam War and trying to defeat Nixon. He and Reuben discussed organizing a tour intended to mobilize the vote that would follow the incumbent president's campaign stops across the country, ending it with a festival in Miami where the Republican National Convention would take place. So he was actually taking an active role against Nixon. It's just interesting that Nixon looked at him such a threat because he did have that power and he did have that influence. Right? How to handle Lenin as a threat became a subject of letters going between J. Edgar Hoover and President Nixon. See, FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover sent a memo to Nixon's chief of staff describing Lenin as a sympathizer of the Trotsky communists in England. In Wiener's book, he wrote, "...for Nixon and Hoover, as another historian has written, the world was a battlefield with active and potential enemies." Lennon became identified as one of those enemies even before he publicly opposed Nixon's reelection. In Nixon's mind, he was forever a victim forced to defend himself against unrelenting and unscrupulous enemies. However, Hoover's rhetoric was more violent. Hoover said about Lennon, his main reason for being is to destroy blindly and indiscriminately, to tear down and provoke chaos. I want to provoke chaos? Me too.
1: I do as often as I can but it's not as frequently as you would think.
0: So the way that they actually tried to neutralize John Lennon was to threaten him with deportation because I guess at that time he had a visa because he was working because he was recording stuff, but I don't think he had his green card. So he technically wasn't a legal U.S. citizen. Right. On March 1st, the Immigration and Naturalization Services delivered a letter to the Lennons requesting that they leave the country within two weeks or face deportation hearings. They used Lennon's 1968 marijuana possession, a misdemeanor, as the reason for the deportation. Weiner told NPR, for much of 1972 and 73, Lennon was under an order to leave the country within 60 days. He had a very talented group of legal help and they kept going under those they kept getting those deadlines extended and extended. Hoover actually died in May 1972 up until that point hassling Lennon actually remained a priority. Wasn't there other stuff you could do, Hoover? <laughs> yeah, it's not like you're
1: the head of the FBI. Oh wait, you are. Yeah. And your
0: biggest <laughs> priority was to get, get rid with, of Lennon. Get, get Lennon deported? Like, Yay. I know you're getting old, but maybe reprioritize. There was a lot of people mobilizing to support him, but really it wasn't until after Watergate and Nixon leaving office that Ford, the you know, the, the Ford administration immigration services finally agreed to grant Lennon his green card on a very narrow legal ground, said the author. So for two years he was under a sixty day order to leave the country almost continuously. So because he had such a good legal team that 60 days kept getting extended, kept getting extended, kept you know kept getting extended. So finally Nixon has the Watergate scandal and then all of a sudden guess what's not a priority? Getting reelected or or, or chasing out Lenin. Yeah. Guess so strange what people get fixated on. Like, you know, super fixated on this stuff. That's just the challenge yeah. of it all. Lynn received his green card eventually, but the FBI and government targeting under Nixon did succeed at one of their goals. Lynn decided to withdraw from Rubin's plans to demonstrate against Nixon and work to get youths registered to vote because it was too dangerous to his fight to stay in the country. So, in one sense, they did succeed in doing something, so he did back off. But this is like the early roots of kind of MTV's Rock the Vote. Right. Was use. Your celebrity to get these people into office. And I think it still happens today. Well,
1: no, that definitely does happen. I feel like, I don't know, I'm well, going to back off that too much political.
0: Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I mean, blanket statements, you know, we do listen to celebrities and we do listen to what their opinions are. And I, I think yeah, if this we is, feel like we can relate with that person, then we
1: tend to be swayed by them.
0: Or when you're someone as big as, like, Oprah, and she's like, this is who I'm voting for, you're like, well, Oprah's a multi-billionaire, so I'm going to listen to her because she knows what she's talking about. Yeah. I think we put a lot of stake in uh, what celebrities believe in.
1: Yeah, but it's happened for a really long time. I mean, you know, we talked about that during the Johnny Cash episode, too,
0: mm-hmm. with with also Nixon. Um <laughs> And we'll talk about Nixon again with Elvis, because Mm -hmm. Nixon did kind of use his presidency to meet the people that he wanted to meet.
1: And then also to try to use them and their celebrity in his favor. So, you know, that was the whole thing with Johnny Cash. And then, you know, since Lennon wasn't a fan, trying to get him out. (laughs) And like, you know, it's just, it's a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what the history is with presidents before him, but I feel like he probably was the first one to start
0: doing that from what we've gone through so far. Um, it was perhaps fortunate that Lennon pulled out because the FBI, through its surveillance, was thus aware that Lennon was no longer planning to be active against Nixon. One of the government's previous plans was an ominous act to have someone waiting for Lennon in Miami And should he have gone there during the Republican National Convention? So the way that they write this, they say that the plan was an ominous act to have someone waiting for Lennon in Miami should he have gone there during the Republican National Convention. I'm wondering what that person would have done. After learning of his change in tactics, the FBI, too, changed its plans. Was the FBI planning to set up Lennon in a drug bust, which could have also been super ominous? Could have been that, too. Yeah, could have been that, too.
1: I mean, it could have been anything from a simple like restraint, like restraining him from attending or deporting him, know,
0: deporting him, drug bust, arrest. Through the Freedom of Information Act, the author was able to see the disturbing document. There is a memo from J. Edgar Hoover to the head of the Miami office that suggests if Lennon could be arrested on possession of narcotics, would he become more immediately Deportable. Because Lennon did not go to Miami, nothing was done. While Reno researched for his book, he pressed for the files on Lennon in the Miami field office. He was told that they all had been destroyed as part of routine procedure. Uh-huh. Routine. Oh, I'm shoot. putting I'm putting those in quotation marks to you folks out there in Radioland. Routine. Routine procedure. Mm. We always set evidence on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> I mean I do. You don't do that? I mean, I occasionally set stuff on fire, but that's because I like fire. Yeah. It's usually food. Because <laughs> I, mean, I can You don't cook. know. Maybe,
1: it was, maybe it's not routine procedure once they're done with the evidence so much as routine procedure for Karen's birthday parties. You don't know the reason.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so kind of moving away from the FBI and Hoover and Nixon... When faced with the closure of the Upper Clyde Shipbuilders which is the USC the workers refused to take it lying down. Rather than striking or accepting instructions to cease operation, they fought for their right to work by completing the orders the yardship had in place. This is this is important and this is attached to John Lennon. The women and men worked without payment from their employers with the support of the community near and far. It sent a powerful message to the, co- the conservative government who had decided that the yard must close. The struggles of these men and women were capturing the hearts and the minds of people far and wide. Many famous names lent their talents and time to the cause. And to help spread the message of the hope for the working class people that unity creates strength, there were letters from around the world and donations to the Workers' Fighting Fund. And so, basically, John and Yoko were really moved by the fact that these people without pay, were con- they were continuing to fight for their right to work, that they still had a job to do. And so John and Yoko donated a ridiculous amount of money to the cause. And at this point, they're starting to put their money where their mouth is. All right, then. Following the Bloody Sunday incident in Northern Ireland in 1972, in which 14 unarmed civil rights protesters were shot dead by the British Army, Lennon said that given the choice between the Army and the IRA, who were not involved in the incident, he would side with the latter. And that, that says a lot. Lennon and Ono wrote two songs protesting British presence and actions in Ireland for their Sometime in New York album titled The Luck of the Irish and Sunday Bloody Sunday. Yeah, so you 2 would go on to write a song with the same title, but completely different. In 2000, David Shaler, a former member of Britain's Domestic Service, MI5, Oh, I love Mission Impossible. uh, Suggested that Lennon had given money to the RA, although that was swiftly denied by Ono. Biographer Bill Harry records that following Bloody Sunday, Lennon and Ono financially supported the production of the film The Irish Tapes, a political documentary with a Republican slant. The people have the power. All we have to do is awaken that power in the people. The people are unaware. They're not educated to realize that they have the power. The system is so geared that everyone believes the government will fix everything. We are the government. And that was a quote by John Lennon. According to FBI surveillance reports and confirmed by Tariq Ali in 2006, Lennon was sympathetic to the international Marxist group a Trotskyist group formed in Britain in 1968. However, the FBI considered Lenin to have limited effectiveness as a revolutionary as he was constantly under the influence of narcotics. So, like, they're basically like, eh, is he really that much of a threat? Because he's on drugs a lot. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, apparently Bob Marley was a problem, and he smoked a lot of weed. Truth. So much so that the CIA gave him cancer, right? Exactly. <laughs> Through his shoes. If you guys didn't listen to our conspiracy theory episode, that was, that was one of the conspiracy theories that the CIA killed Bob Marley because he could be a major influence on political points. <laughs> Sometime in New York City was recorded as a collaboration with Ono, and it was released in 1972 with backing from the New York band... Elephant's Memory, a double LP. It contains songs about women's rights, race, race relations, Britain's role in Northern Ireland, and Lennon's difficulties obtaining a green card. So I would say this is probably the one that is mostly about his life. Like he wrote this kind of they say write what you know, and that's what Lennon did. The album was a commercial failure and was maligned by critics who found it's his political sloganeering heavy-handed, and relentless. The NME review took the form of an open letter which Tony Tyler derided Lennon as a pathetic, aging revolutionary. That's harsh. In the U.S., Woman is the, I'm not saying this word, of the world, was released as a single from the album and was televised on the 11th of May on the Dick Cavett Show. Many radio stations refused to, To broadcast the song because of that racial slur in the title. Lennon Odo gave two benefit concerts with Elephant's Memory. And guest in New York in aid of patients at the Willowbrook State Mental Facility. Oh my god. Willow. Oh the Willowbrook. Do you know anything about Willowbrook? Nope. Okay. So before he tried to open up Al Capone's vault... Geraldo Rivera snuck into the Willowbrook Asylum and found the the entire asylum in deplorable conditions. People were, like, naked on the floor. They were filthy. They were covered in their own filth. They were underfed. Some were left in total darkness. I mean, it was... It's honestly... You know me. And I think our audience knows me. I can take a lot. Creepy stuff doesn't bother me. I had nightmares about this documentary. It is terrifying. And I, I think it lends to the fact that, like, the, the footage is super grainy. And the voiceover is, it sounds old. But to see these people in these conditions is just awful. And you, Ew. yeah, you can find that documentary. I think it's Remembering Willowbrook. But if you look at if you look up Peralta Rivera Willowbrook on YouTube, you can find the whole uh, the whole documentary online. And I was just disturbed by that documentary. So it's interesting that he was actually trying to aid the patients there. So it was staged at Madison Square Garden on the thirtieth of August, nineteen seventy-two, where it was a full-length concert, which was rare because usually he'd play like. 10 to 20 minutes. After George McGovern lost the 1972 presidential election to Richard Nixon, Lennon and Ono attended a post-election wake held in New York at the home of activist Jerry Rubin. Lennon was depressed and got intoxicated, and he left Ono embarrassed after he had sex with a female guest. Ono's song, Death of Samantha, was inspired by that incident. So, party, drunk, extramarital affair, all in one night. (laughs) Well, all right then. Yeah, while Lennon was recording Mind Games in 1973, he and Ono decided to separate. In the ensuing 18 months apart, which he later called his "lost weekend," was spent in Los Angeles and New York in the company of May Pang. Mind Games, credited to the Plastic U.F. Ono band, was released in 1973. Lennon also contributed I'm the Greatest to Star's album Ringo, released that same month. In 1973, Lennon contributed a limerick called Why Make It Sad to Be Gay to Lynn Richmond's The Gay Liberation Book. I thought this was funny because this is a fun fact. Fun fact! (laughs) Once he went on a liquid diet that lasted over a month as a result of gastric flu. He was on a only liquid diet for 40 days And he read numerous cookbooks during this time to quench his hunger. So literally, that is the opposite for me. If I'm
1: hungry, I can't go digging into my cookbooks to figure out like my meal plan. I need to eat first.
0: That's my biggest. It just makes me more and more and more hungry. That makes me. Okay. So, you know, I was working on a cooking show at one point where it was just all pies Right, right. And I think at one point I grabbed Will by the throat and just said, if you don't get me a pie, I will hurt you. So I couldn't even, like, I was just scrolling through Instagram at that point and eating three meals a day. So I can't imagine going 40 days without food and just looking at pictures of them. I would have punched through a wall. Well, yeah,
1: because especially cookbooks make them all look super, super special and fancy and, like, Well, food porn. It's a a thing for a reason.
0: It's a thing. (laughs) His Mind Games album came about because in 1973, the other members of the Beatles were behind quota in their renegotiation of their contract with EMI. Neither George Harrison nor Ringo Starr had released an album in 71 or 72. Harrison's The Concert for Bangladesh in 1972 soundtrack didn't count under the contract because it was a charity all-star album co-distributed by EMI and Columbia Records. So it didn't count. While Lee Eastman had brokered a special deal for their son-in-law, Paul McCartney, because remember he married Linda. Right. Linda was in no hurry to record after the failure of Sometime in New York City. But with legal actions pending against the former rock band, he locked himself away in a bedroom for 48 hours writing and polishing off an album's worth of songs, which he recorded quickly in a couple weeks. The album was... Only a modest hit, but it did satisfy EMI's requirements. Well see, there you go. Yeah. Gotta stick the contracts, man. They'll get you. In early nineteen seventy four, Lennon was drinking heavily and his alcohol fueled antics with Harry Nilsson <laughs> made headlines. I love this story so much. <laughs>
1: All right, but you gotta hold it together long <laughs> enough to read the sentence.
0: <laughs> um if you if you I'm Pretty sure you haven't seen the show, because I feel like we would have talked about it. But the TV show, Russian Doll, Harry's song, Gotta Get Up, is used in every single gotta episode. Gotta get up. Go, gotta get up. Nope. Gotta get up. Nope. No. Nope. Gotta oh, wait, get no. up. Gotta get out. Gotta get home before the morning comes. What if I'm late? Got a big day. Guys can't stay. Oh, I gotta okay. run home, yeah. Oh, okay. Nope. Yeah. That's... <laughs> that's... A, but it's used in Russian Doll, and so... But that's my uh, my alarm clock. Every morning is that song. Ah, oh, fair enough. Because it starts out really well
1: and builds to it. The one I was singing is, I think, a current one or a recent one. Yeah, no, it's a da na 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 na.
0: Minor birds. So <laughs> I'm going to hold it together for this because it is really funny. In March of that year, the two widely publicized incidents occurred at the Troubadour Club. In the first instance, Lennon stuck an unused menstrual pad to his forehead and scuffled with a waitress. <laughs> I mean, at oh least it was God. unused. The second incident occurred two weeks later when <laughs> when John and Harry were ejected from the same club after heckling the Smothers Brothers. Why? Like the guys with the yo-yos. <laughs> I mean, if you were loaded, that would be pretty heckleable. <laughs> it is. Oh, the Smothers Brothers were like good, clean fun. Yeah. I
1: mean, I don't know why you would want to ho- heckle them, but I mean, if you were loaded.
0: Yeah. So Lennon decided to produce uh, Nielsen's album Pussycats, and Peng rented a Los Angeles beach house for all the musicians. And remember, May is the girl he kind of picked up with when he and Yoko were on a break. Right. After a month of further debauchery, the recording sessions were in chaos, and Lennon returned to New York with Pang to finish work on the album. In April, Lennon had produced the Mick Jagger song, Too Many Cooks. Aw, oh, come on. Now that's going to be stuck in my head. Too many cooks, too many cooks. You know, the Adult Swim thing. Have you been protected from this? Because I'm not going to show it to you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I don't. I like you and don't want to make you suffer. I have been protected from this, so please don't. I'm not going to I'm not going force you. Which was, for contractual reasons, to remain unreleased for more than 30 years. Peng supplied the recordings for its eventual inclusion on The Very Best of Mick Jagger in 2007. In 74, while standing on the balcony of his apartment, you'll appreciate this, with his former flame... May Pang, the pair claimed to have seen a flying saucer. He referenced the event in the song, Nobody Told Me, with the lyrics, There's a UFO over New York, and I ain't too surprised. Why do you say I would appreciate that? Because that's a banana story. Well, it is kind of bananas. It's it's not but exactly a fun fact, but it is bananas, and I thought you'd appreciate the humor in that.
1: I do. Yeah. I like the off-the-wall stories.
0: Yeah it like, makes, what? <laughs> it makes
1: it fun. I thought you were thinking that I was like a a alien nerd and like uh, no. no. I'm the
0: I'm <laughs> if it, if either one of us is the alien nerd, I'm the alien nerd. I have friends that have been abducted by aliens, so mm. I don't
1: be-
0: I don't not believe in them, but I'm yeah. When Lennon had settled back in New York when he was recording the album Walls and Bridges, released in October of 1974, it included Whatever Gets You Through the Night, which featured Elton John on backing vocals and piano and became Lennon's only single as a solo artist to top the U.S. Billboard 100 charts during his lifetime. Isn't that crazy? A second single from the album, "Number 9 Dream, followed before the end of the year, stars Goodnight Vienna, again saw assistance from Lennon, who wrote the title track and played the piano. On November 28th of that year, Lennon made a surprise guest appearance at the Elton John's Thanksgiving concert at the Madison Square Garden in fulfillment of his promise to join the singer at a live show. If Whatever Gets You Through the Night, a song whose commercial potential Lennon had doubted, reached number one. Lennon performed the song along with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and I Saw Her Standing There. He introduced it as a song by an old estranged fiancé of mine called Paul. (laughs) <laughs> he isolated himself from the members of the Beatles after 1974. He had slammed Paul McCartney in the press, to which McCartney vehemently responded. He and George Harrison had stopped talking at after an argument over the concert for Bangladesh. Lennon wanted Yoko Ono to be an integral part of his show. We actually already talked about that. But he didn't want her to perform, and so he ended up pulling out. Lennon was also deeply hurt that, that Harrison had largely left him out of his autobiography, I, Me, Mine, And they never spoke again after release of that book. He stayed away from Ringo Starr because he wanted to stay sober and Starr was always drinking. And he and McCartney were together for the last time on April 24th, 1976. The night of the first Saturday Night Live episode. Which is awesome. Cool. Uh, They offered to pay $3,200 for the Beatles to reunite. Harrison maintained in later years that their disagreement was petty and there was no real animosity between them. I've... I get this feeling that everybody has their own opinion about who did what, who broke up who, who walked first, who did this, who did that, who wrote what and it just seems like in the end they were all amazing artists and if they could have just gotten over their egos maybe they could have gotten back together. Exactly. Sorry if it seems like I'm editorializing. Simplifying. But but it it seems like later on in life everybody said this is petty and we shouldn't have broken up. We could have gotten through this. Here's uh, something that I was really excited about. Did you know that Lennon actually co-wrote Fame, David Bowie's first US number 1? I did not, but I like it. Yes. And he provided guitar and backing vocals for the January 1975 recording. In that same month, Elton John topped the charts with his cover of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, featuring Lennon on guitar and backup vocals. Lennon is credited on the single under the <laughs> Okay, I do have notes about this, but he under the n- the moniker of Winston O'Boogie. <laughs> he and Ono reunited shortly after, and Lennon released Rock and Roll 1975, an album of cover songs in February. Stand By Me is taken from the album, and it was a US and UK hit, becoming his last single for five years. <sighs> he made what would be his final stage appearance in the ATV special, A Salute to Lou Grade recorded on the 18th of April and televised in June. Lennon performed two songs from Rock and Roll, Stand By Me, which was not broadcast, and Slippin' and Slidin', followed by Imagine. The band, known as Etcetera, wore masks mask behind their heads, a dig by Lennon, who thought Grade was Two-Face. <laughs> uh. During the struggle to obtain his green card, Lennon was also struggling with his relationship with Ono, so we're kind of popping back and forth. The two essentially separated... For over a year and Lennon even moved out to California to live with the former secretary, May Peng, with whom Ono had encouraged him to begin a relationship. So did they have an open relationship? That's my my question, because I know Ono was aware that he was having, you know, extramarital affairs. It was just was that okay, or was it encouraged? I know you don't have an answer, but
1: yeah, I was going to say, I don't know.
0: I'm just wondering out loud.
1: It seemed like they were very free-spirited.
0: Yeah. So we talked about how he referred to that as his lost weekend. But that was fueled by drugs and marked by aggressive behavior from Lennon. So he actually once tried to strangle Pang. Jeez. I would say, yeah, that's violent. Yeah, just a little. Mm-hmm. By Lennon's absence, Ono realized that she needed him in her life. That's sweet. She ultimately came to blame society's pressures and not him, telling Playboy... John was a fine person. It was society that had become too much. I'm thankful to John's intelligence. He was intelligent enough to know that this was the only way he could save our marriage. Not because we didn't love each other, but because it was getting too much for me. When the two reunited, Ono quickly became pregnant. She gave birth to Sean Lennon. And for those who are keeping score, that is child number two. First one was with Cynthia Powell, which was Julian. And we... ...don't really ever hear about him. And actually, Sean was born on John's 35th birthday on October 9th, 1975. Which is crazy to think that he's only four years older than me. That's, for me, I don't know, that it seems like a different time. So when Sean was born, there was this massive change in Lennon's life. Where he had been an absent father to Julian, he was a doting father to Sean giving up music and instead spending his time as a house husband. Lennon also began spending time with Julian again during the 1970s. Julian visited New York and Lennon taught his first son guitar techniques. Which if I'm Julian, I'm pissed. Well, he's at least making an effort to be a dad at this point to yeah. him.
1: Yeah. it just sucks that it's prompted by
0: your other son. Well, I think... There was a conscious shift in his life where he, he went off and he did his Lost Weekend thing. And now he's coming back to be a better father and a better husband. Right. So, I mean, he quit music to be with his kids. Yeah. And now both of them are artists in their own right. So I think they both have albums that are out. So, I mean, at least he's trying to pass on something to them, which I think, I think it just shows a big shift in his character that now he is moving to change. Right. Lennon began what would be a five-year hiatus from the music industry, and during that time, he later said he baked bread and looked after the baby. That's so cute. And he devoted himself to Sean, raising at 6 a.m. daily to plan and prepare his meals and to spend time with him. He wrote Cookin' in the Kitchen of Love for Ringo's star, Ringo's Retro Grové. That is a very weird word. I'm sorry. Performing on the track in June for what would be his last recording session until 1980. One small thing about Sean, he didn't actually know that his father was a beetle until he saw Yellow Submarine on TV. (laughs) So he grew up not realizing. I mean, the thing is, Sean was five when his father was murdered. So I don't think that he got the concept of. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't think he understood the concept of fame or who his father was was and what impact he had had on society. Right. I mean, I don't know if I could grasp that when I was five. But then you see a cartoon of someone who looks vaguely like your father, and that's when you connect the dots. I mean, that's, that's got to be mind-blowing when you finally understand that impact. Right. Before embarking to Japan in summer of 1977, he actually enrolled in a six-week Japanese course at Manhattan's Berlitz Language Center. They went to a small village, and I'm going to mess this up because I cannot speak Japanese. I know how to say I love you, in a village called Karuzawa. It's about an hour from Tokyo, and it's, everything that I looked up about it, it's just this great place to get away. Um, and it's not too far, like, it's a kind of village, and it's an hour from Tokyo, so if you need to get to the city, you can. And, you know, you, if you want to get away, this is what, I kind of look at this as Palm Springs to L.A. Okay. So, like, you have the hustle and the bustle of the city, but if you if you want to, like, go into the suburbs and, you know, relax and find cute stores and... Nice little shops, like that's where you would go. That's that's kind okay. of the parallel I can draw yeah. from what I know. John and Yoko often stayed at the Mempai Hotel, specifically room 128. So if you ever want to follow in the steps of John Lennon, stay in room 128. Its rustic charm and old-fashioned rooms appeal to the couple. The hotel boasts its royal milk tea, which was actually the singer's favorite drink. Um, but... Basically, they went there. I looked up as much as I could to try to find out why he went to Japan, but I there there wasn't really a reason to go. They just went. Okay. So I'm sorry I couldn't find that answer for you guys, but he actually formally announced his break from music in Tokyo in 77, saying we have basically decided without any great decision to be with our baby as much as we can until we feel we can take time off to indulge ourselves ...in creating things outside of the family. During his career break, he created several series of drawings... ...and I'm sure you've seen some of these drawings... ...are pretty darn famous... ...and drafted a book containing a mix of autobiographical material... ...and what he termed to be mad stuff... ...all of which would be published posthumously. For five years, Lennon focused on domestic life... ...but by 1980, he felt the tug of an artistic muse again. He began writing songs, recorded an album and officially re-entered the music scene with the release of Double Fantasy in the fall of 1980. John Lennon was back. Boom. If you want to know the flip side of what we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes, not sponsored, but Last Podcast on the Left did a great breakdown of who Mark David Chapman was and what he was doing. Prior to the assassination, Last Podcast on the Left has a great episode on Mark David Chapman but he is not a musician so we're going to talk about the musician part of this <laughs> well alright then Lennon emerged from his five year interruption in music recording in October of 1980 when he released the single Just Like Starting Over the following month we saw the release of Double Fantasy which we just talked about which contained the songs written during a June 1980 journey to Bermuda on a 43 foot sailboat the music reflected in John Lennon's fulfillment in his newfound, stable family life. Sufficient additional material was recorded for a planned follow-up album, Milk and Honey, which was released posthumously in 1984. Double Fantasy was jointly released by Lennon and Ono very shortly before his death. The album was not well-received and drew comments such as Melody Maker's indulgent sterility, which I think means, well, the rest of that is a god-awful yawn. So it was stale, stagnant, and made you sleepy. Lennon's last act of political activism was a statement in support of the striking minority sanitation workers in San Francisco on the 5th of December 1980. He and Ono had planned to join the workers' protest on December the 14th. In the days leading up to Lennon's murder, his killer, Mark David Chapman, Lived the life, and that was in his words, of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, the narrator, Ugh. Holden Caulfield.
1: That explains it all. There's been he's all... trying to be Holden Caulfield.
0: There's a lot of murderers that gravitated toward Catcher in the Rye.
1: Go figure. I couldn't even finish that book because of the narcissistic ravings and rantings of Holden Caulfield. Uh, funny thing. I,
0: I love reading. I love reading. I just picked up like six new books. Love reading. Never read Catcher in the Rye.
1: No, I made it halfway through because it is, you know, was so highly touted that I'm like, okay, well, I will read it because it is a classic. Uh, fail. Holden Caulfield is arguably one of the
0: worst characters ever written. Fight me, I don't care. But it's truth. Fair enough. Okay, so we're about to do something that we really haven't done on this show before. But it's so incredibly well documented that I thought it might be interesting to deliver this to you guys. Which is a timestamp of the last day of John Lennon's life. So I just thought this would be really interesting to do. Um, Two months after Double Fantasy was released, Lennon and Ono headed to the recording studio to work on one of the new songs he had written. Lennon was in good spirits on the morning of the 8th, but sadly his life would be tragically cut short before the day's end. So I'm going to give you guys a timeline of his final hours in detail. And uh, before I start this, can I just say the building that they lived in, the Dakota, is a creepy place. Have you ever seen The Dakota? Nope. Uh, Did you ever see Rosemary's Baby? Nope. Okay. You should see Rosemary's Baby. It's a classic. But The Dakota is really interesting because I watched a documentary on The Dakota. And uh, it's where Rosemary's Baby takes place. But, like, one of the owners was killed. Like, one of the original, like, creators of the building was killed. And it's now such an exclusive building that people like Madonna and Billy Joel have been refused units in the place. So, I mean, this is... Jeez. Yeah, this is an exclusive place. This is one of the fanciest places. And I think it overlooks Central Park. Like, it's super close to Central Park. Beautiful building, but they have two security guards on site at all times. And so when we were in New York with... Uh, our stepson, Eli, we actually walked past it, but we were trying to, like, pretend to not look at it while trying to look at it because I didn't know if we were going to be arrested by walking past the building. Jeez. But it is it is fancy. It's a very fancy thing. Anyway, here is the timeline. At 11 a.m., Rolling Stone magazine Annie Leibovitz, who is super famous in the photography world, arrives at Lennon's apartment for a photo shoot Around the same time, Lennon returns home after getting a haircut, reportedly in a 1950s teddy boy style, at an Upper West Side barbershop near the Dakota, the building where he and Ono lived. During that shoot, Leibowitz wanted to take a photograph of Lennon and Ono together, both nude, but digressed after Ono said that she was uncomfortable with being completely naked. She takes a single Polaroid of a completely clothed Ono, lying on her back and a naked linen who is kissing and embracing him, wa- his wife in a fetal position. And I have seen that photo. It seems a little odd. She seems, like, Ono seems uncomfortable. Upon taking the shot, the three knew that they had created something profound. Incredibly impressed with the image, the couple tells Lebowitz, you captured our relationship exactly. And so that picture would actually go on to be printed on Rolling Stone's cover on January the 22nd, 1981. In 2005... It's named the top cover photo of the previous 40 years by the American Society of Magazine Editors. At 12 p.m., Paul Gorish, a friend of Lennon, makes small talk outside of the Dakota with a stranger he encountered there minutes earlier, 25-year-old Mark David Chapman. Chapman, who's holding a copy of Double Fantasy, tells Paul that he's from Hawaii and he's awaiting Lennon's exit from the building in the hopes that he'll autograph his album. At 12.40, employees from San Francisco's RKO Radio, including famed radio personality Dave Sholin, arrive at the Dakota for an interview with Lennon to promote Double Fantasy. A smiling Lennon does a little jump in the air... (laughs) And in a welcoming fashion announces, Well, here I am, folks. The show's ready to begin. He speaks candidly about the lost revolutionary focus of the 1960s and his advocacy for world peace and feminism. Maybe in the 60s we were naive like children, and later everyone went back to their rooms and said, We didn't get a wonderful world of flowers and peace. The world is a nasty and horrible place because it didn't give us everything we cried for, he said. Right? Crying for it wasn't enough. When the interview came to a close, Lennon remarks, I consider that my work won't be finished until I'm dead and buried, and I hope that is a long, long time. (sighs) I don't know why that creeps me out so much. Because it wasn't a long, long time? Uh, No, it's about five hours. Exactly. During the interview, his son, Sean, accompanied by nanny Helen Seaman, returns home after spending time on Long Island. 4.30 p.m., Lennon and Ono have exited Dakota with the RKO radio crew and are awaiting a ride to take them to to the record plant studio in Midtown where they plan to work on a new single, Walking on Thin Ice. During this time, Chapman, his double fantasy copy still in hand, approaches Lennon and extends the album to him. When the former Beatle asks the stranger if he wants him to sign it, Chapman nods timidly, standing there, and the camera in hand, Gorish takes a photo of the two men, one of the last photos ever taken of John Lennon was him signing the album of the person that is about to assassinate him. Like, how... So messed up. I don't know why, that just gives me the shivers. Arkeo's limo arrives shortly thereafter, and Sholin offers to give Lennon and Ono a ride to the studio. 5 p.m., they arrive at Record Plant, and they begin to work with producer Jack Douglas on their new song. John plays the guitar piece for the track. It is his last musical recording before the jovial couple exits the studio. So that's at 5 p.m., and... It seems like he records for about looks like five and a half hours or so, because they leave the studio at ten fifty PM and they head home to the Dakota. After exiting their limo, Lennon makes eye contact with the awkward young man he had met hours before. Chapman, with his now signed album in hand, he's after more than an autograph this time. Seconds later, Chapman pulls out a thirty-eight handgun and fires five shots at the musician, hitting Lennon four times in the back and the chest. Lennon somehow manages to continue to walk, but eventually collapsing in the front vestibule of the Dakota. Strewn around him are a number of cassettes that he had been holding. A terrified Ono enters the building screaming, John has been shot. Seconds later, building worker Jay Hastings alerts the police. Officer Steve Spiro arrives at the scene within minutes, and Lennon is taken to Roosevelt Hospital near Central Park on 59th Street. (sighs) Sorry. Super hard just knowing when they got out of the car Sean was with them like their son was with them at one point with the nanny and because this photographer knew the nanny from being there for so long because like these people like hang out at the Dakota for a chance to meet John. And to talk to him and apparently he become kind of pally with some of these people and like even some of the staff from the hotel would send some of these people out on runs and stuff because they were just there and willing to help. So right Sean had met Mark David Chapman because this photographer introduced Sean to the or sorry introduced Mark to the nanny and Sean and he actually talked to Sean it's so <sighs> gross so creepy. And when he shot Lennon, he sat down on the curb, pulled out his copy of Catcher in the Rye, and just started reading it. Didn't try to run, didn't try to hide. He, from what I've read and heard, I think what he thought, like his mental state was that once he killed John Lennon, John Lennon would disappear and he would disappear. Like legitimately, like thought that, they would be sucked into the pages of Catcher in the Rye, if that makes any sense. So weird. So, and that's that's some of the stuff I've heard and I've read, was that was what he, that that is the mental state that he was in during the assassination. So, but again, there are podcasts that just solely focus on Mark David Chapman, and if you're really interested in finding out about who he was and what led him to that, check those, check those out. Okay, so at 11.15, Dr. Stephen Lynn was the emergency room physician who received Lennon at the ER that night. Lennon was shot a few minutes before 11 p.m. that night. When he arrived after being brought in by the police, he had no pulse and was not breathing. Dr. Lynn and two other doctors and a nurse worked on Lennon for 15 to 20 minutes in an attempt to revive him. As a last resort, Lynn cut open Lennon's chest and attempted to uh, manually heart massage, like you know, when they reach in and just try to massage yeah. the heart to try to restore circulation but he quickly discovered that the damage to the blood vessels above and around Lennon's heart from the through-and-through through gunshot wounds was too great. Dr. Lynn soon gave up and pronounced Lennon dead on arrival at 11.15. But the TOD has also been recorded as 11.07 by some unknown sources. I just thought I'd throw that in there. In response to Lennon's wounds and medical treatment, Lynn later stated in reports that If Lennon had been shot this way in the middle of the hospital's operating room with myself and a whole team of surgeons ready to work on him, would not have survived his injuries. So that tells you how bad he was, like how how traumatic the injuries were. After doctors in the Roosevelt emergency room spent several frantic minutes trying to save Lennon, Ono is approached by the head ER doctor. He informs her that the medical staff was unable to resuscitate her husband and Lennon was officially pronounced dead. Ono was hysterical for several minutes after she refused to accept or believe what I told her, Lynn recalled in a 2005 interview with the Washington Post. For five minutes, she kept repeating, it's not true, I don't believe you, you're lying. After regaining her composure, Ono asked Lynn to wait to publicly announce the news so that she could tell Sean. ABC's Howard Cosell was the first to break the news that Lennon had died, interrupting a Monday night football game between the New England Patriots and the Miami Dolphins. Cosell also announced that a special edition of Nightline would air 30 minutes after the game, providing additional information on the musician's death. Crowds began to show up at the Dakota, singing Lennon songs and carrying signs in his memory. No funeral was held. Instead, Ono had his body cremated and scattered his ashes in Central Park. The location is now Strawberry Fields, a memorial dedicated to Lennon that is visited by legions of fans each year. And I should say, and I think I have it in my notes, is that that's per this article that I read that she spread it at Strawberry Fields. That's actually just kind of a rumor. Nobody actually knows what happened to his remains because Yoko took them and told no one. I assume... Don't blame her. I assume that Sean and Julian probably know what happened to him, but the public doesn't know. So, and I think it's better that way. I agree. That's something very personal. Yeah. That's something that should not... Sorry, I don't think it should be shared with the world. I think that that, that at that moment of someone's death, it becomes a very private, personal thing. And because of what she chose, I think she kept something for herself. And I think that was beautiful that she just chose not to tell anyone. John Lennon's public life was dedicated to art and the promotion of peace. While his private life was quite a bit more complicated and dramatic, there is no doubt that he holds a special place in the lives of the people that grew up with him and his music, as well as his children and grandchildren of those baby boomers who have come to love his music and his legacy. A groundbreaking musician and experimental artist, Lennon turned his private pain into beauty for the world. His legacy has lived on for decades after his death and will surely continue to live on long after we're all gone. In the days after Mark David Chapman shot Lennon, the area around the gates of Dakota quickly turned into a makeshift memorial. The killing was shocking not only for its senselessness, but Lennon had managed to escape the many other pitfalls of stardom. He'd beat the rock and roll life Time remembers uh, quoting Steve Van Zandt saying the day after Lennon died, he beat the drugs, beat the fame, beat the damage. He was the only guy who beat it all. So it makes sense. As the story reports, the flowers and signs were just the beginning of the aftershock. Ono oh, issued a statement the next day saying there will be no funeral for John. Ending with the words, John loved and prayed for the human race. Please do the same for him. His remains were cremated like we talked about at the Ferncliff Cemetery in Hartsdale. Chapman avoided going to trial when he ignored his attorney's advice and pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 20 years to life. And I think he's still in prison, and I think he will stay in prison until Yoko dies. Why do you think that he won't be in there till after she dies? I mean, he might, but the I, it's the same thing with, like, the Manson women. I think as long as Sharon's sister Debbie is still alive, none of them will get out of prison. As long as you have somebody that is part of that person's life fighting for fighting for you to stay in there yeah it's fighting for you to stay in there I think that gives them more of a reason to keep him in there yeah so I think it's like this I think it's literally the same thing as the Manson girls is like as long as someone's there fighting they'll stay in prison I'd be surprised if Sean didn't pick up that
1: mantle even after you know heaven forbid when Yoko passes I'd be surprised if he didn't pick it up because that Man fooled them all and talked to him And I'm sorry, but I don't know how Someone murders or assassinates your father After having talked to
0: their son Like, gross Um, I'm gonna go out on a limb and editorialize I don't think Mark David Chapman Was in a very good headspace Probably not So, I'm gonna guess, no Yeah. In the weeks following the murder Just like Starting Over and Double Fantasy Topped the charts in the UK and the US In a further example of public outpouring of grief, Imagine hit number one in the UK in 81, and Happy Xmas peaked at number two. Later that year, Roxy's music cover version of Jealous Guy recorded as a tribute to Lennon was also a UK number one. Ringo Starr flew to New York to see Yoko. George Harrison, shattered and stunned, went into his retreated home in Oxfordshire, England. Paul McCartney, who Lennon plainly loved and just plainly hated like a brother, He had never had said, I can't tell you how much it hurts me to lose him. His death is a bitter and cruel blow. I really loved the guy. Having no wish to contribute to the hysteria that always follows grief, such as a public mourning, McCartney, who has hired two bodyguards to protect himself and his family, said that he would stay at home in Sussex, England, even if there was a funeral which there was not. Ono issued a statement inviting everyone to participate from wherever you are in a 10-minute silent vigil on Sunday afternoon. Uh, and the whole thing about Paul McCartney hiring bodyguards, John Lennon's team had been on him to hire bodyguards for weeks. And he was just like, I'll just take care of it later. I'll just take it. And he kept pushing it off and pushing it off. And I think two days before he was assassinated, uh, like part of his team was like, you have to get security. You have to start setting boundaries against these fans. Like, you just can't wander out on the street. You're John Lennon. Right. And he was like, I'll just deal with it later. And and then this happened. So, before that, it had been a week of tributes. Radio stations from New Orleans to Boston cleared their airwaves for Lennon and Beatles retrospectives. In Los Angeles, more than 2,000 people joined a candlelight vigil at Century City. And in Washington, several hundred crowded the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in a silent tribute that recalled the sit-ins of the 60s. Record stores all over the country reported sellouts of the new Lennon Ono oh album Double Fantasy, their first record in 5 years as well as backstock of Lennon's previous records. And then some of the reactions were beyond tragic. A teenage girl in Florida and a man who was 30 in Utah killed themselves, leaving notes that spoke of their depression over Lennon's death. I that is so incredibly sad. Paul McCartney wrote Here Today as a tribute to him. George Harrison remembered Lennon with his songs All Those Years Ago, which featured Ringo on the drums, Paul McCartney, and Linda McCartney on background vocals. He is referred in the works of several other musicians. Queen actually recorded a tribute to Lennon called Life Is Real from their Hot Space album. And his death is a subject of the Chameleon song Here Today from their album Script of the Bridge. The Cranberry song... I just shot John Lennon, explored the days of his murderers. There was a song called Warm, Wet Circle, which refers to the lyric like a bullet hole in Central Park from the... I'm going to mess this band's name up. But it's uh, the Marillion, and their album Clutching at Straws. His death is also referred to in the lyrics of the badly drawn boys song, You Were Right, and the Bellamy Brothers song, Old Hippie. OAR wrote Dakota for their album... Stories of a stranger in memory of Lennon. The Richie Sambora song Made in America references Lennon's death and addresses his legacy. Elton John recorded Empty Garden, Hey Johnny Hey, Hey Johnny for his ninety two album Jump Up as a tribute. David Bowie also recorded the song. Never Let Me Down, the title track of his 1987 album as an homage to Lennon. And Bowie actually sang it in the style of Lennon as well as performing the mouth organ and whistling in a Lennon style. And that was all of the, That that's just like a small sliver of the impact that John Lennon made on the world. And if I if I sat here and rattled off every instance where someone references John Lennon... TJ would literally assassinate me.
1: Oh yeah, I just started looking for the Victoria's Secret Christmas album that, you- <laughs> <laughs> that I was looking for. But I mean,
0: <laughs> so I I I didn't want to end this on a downer, so I decided to pull a TJ and do some fun facts.
1: I should know. It was not out of disrespect. It was just out of like, oh yeah, like eight million people have like mentioned him in some
0: way or paid homage to him in some way and you know yeah it. he is one of the most influential people on the planet so if I sat here and rattled off every thing that he has influenced we would not be able to take the nap that I have planned yeah
1: <laughs> naps are important
0: so I, I did want to end on a more fun and lighter note than the heaviness of losing one of the most influential figures of our generation. I was alive. So he technically is my generation. I was born a year before he was assassinated. So. I, was, I was not alive. Yes. So, wait. So, fun facts! By LD. Um, <laughs> fun fact, he drank. When I read this, I actually had to bring Will into the bedroom as I was writing this because I was so blown away that I needed him to make sure this number was Right. Because I didn't think it was humanly possible. But he would drink 20 to 30 cups of tea or coffee daily. What? How did his heart not explode? Tea, maybe. Oh, man. If it's uncaffeinated. But 30 cups? 30 cups of maybe anything. Maybe they're small. How much do you pee? A lot. <laughs> um, You're just like
1: constantly drinking.
0: That is an IV. Like you're never
1: not drinking tea. <laughs> yes.
0: An actor named Mark Lindsay Chapman lost the part of John Lennon in John and Yoko, a love story because he had a similar name as Lennon's killer. Chapman later portrayed Lennon in Chapter 27. You know what Chapter 27 is, right? Nope. It's the Jared Leto film about Mark Old David Chapman. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that guy. When Rolling Stone Magazine launched in November of 1967, Lennon made the first cover in a photo from How I Won the War. Like, how cool is that? You're on the first ever issue of Rolling Stone. Even though they've gone downhill lately. I mean, they they did a lot of firsts. Yeah. Speaking of firsts, the first instrument John Lennon ever learned how to play was actually the harmonica. Cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this was one of my favorites. I loved this. He had used a number of pseudonyms in his music work. These include Doctor Watson Oboogie, Booker Table, Dwarf McDougal, Reverend Fred Gorkin, Mel <laughs> Mel Torment, Doctor Dream, the Honorable John Saint John Johnson, and John O'Keen, Joel Nome, Captain. <laughs> Couldn't I? I think that's how you say that. But he's just making stuff up. Dad and Winston, le- Winston leg thigh, Winston leg thigh. Um, my favorite is the Honorable John St. John Johnson, <laughs> or Dwarf McDougal.
1: <laughs> I mean, he's creative
0: guy. That's for sure. <laughs> And he has a sense of humor about himself. This is going to be important later on in a future episode of Rock and Roll Heaven because his song with the Beatles, In My Life, was played at the funeral of Kurt Cobain. Well, there you go. And that's my episode. Made a lot, lot, lot of <sighs> conspiracy theories. Okay. He was inducted posthumously into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Beatles, January 20th, 1988, And he was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist in 1994. Um, He was voted as a solo artist as the 38th greatest rock and roll artist by Rolling Stone. And the Beatles were voted the greatest rock and roll artist of all time on the same list in that magazine. And to end you on this, Elton John is the godfather of his son, Sean. Isn't that kind of cool? That's cool. I like it. I want my godfather to be Elton John. I think a lot of people would like that. Um, yeah, so that, that is the sad end to our tale. Uh, do you have anything? Nope. <laughs> check us out next week. Yes, we will have an episode next week, which will come out on Christmas Day. Woo-woo! I'm super excited. Are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, just to check in, I am still surviving Whamageddon. Ditto. I'm I've survived so far. I've survived so far. I was super worried last night because, you know, I don't go out in the public all that often, but I went to two parties and they didn't play the song. So I'm very happy.
1: Now, are they all still trying to survive Wham again too because that could be play played into it? I don't know
0: if they are or not. I don't even know if they knew about this kind of contest that's happening. <laughs> There's no winners. There's no losers. It's just. Oh, there are are losers.
1: (laughs) In everything, there are losers. Yeah. So (laughs) I'm
0: still holding strong. But like I I went into Target the other day and I I was beating myself up because I thought, oh, crap, I didn't bring my headphones. What if they play it while I'm shopping at Target? And when I walked in, they weren't playing any music. That's creepy. Their system had busted.
1: Oh, see, there it is.
0: There was no music at Target. And I'm like,
1: somebody's watching over me.
0: Someone from Wemhala is obviously watching over me.
1: I have not indulged in as much holiday stuff as I normally would have at this point. Not because I'm, I'm trying to avoid that song, but just because I haven't. It's very sad, actually.
0: I don't listen to conventional radio anymore. I'm... I'm only listening right now to podcasts. I found a new podcast called The Necronomapod, which is kind of, if you've ever listened to the Brohio podcast, they're kind of the same, in the same vein as, uh, like, the same format. Three guys talking about true crime and paranormal events. And so okay, I was just listening to that. And then occasionally I built a Beatles Spotify list to get into the mood but uh, yeah, I've, I've successfully avoided that song. So I'm very proud of myself. But if you have been hit by Whamageddon, please go to our Instagram page. You'll see there is a picture there of the rules. And then let us know on our Instagram whether or not you've been hit or whether you are still safe. As for that, that's the episode. I really, really want to thank you guys so much for checking this episode out. We will be back on Christmas. We will be back on New Year's Day We've still got those episodes, so check us out. We will have an announcement on our New Year's episode, so listen up for that. That's all the business for me. TJ, do you have anything fun and interesting that our listeners could possibly check out? Yes, I do. So if you're in California,
1: and specifically the LA area, uh, I will be performing as part of a huge... Variety show um, on Sunday, the 22nd at Joe's Great American Bar in Burbank, California. The night is going to be filled with fun music and comedians and magic and just a whole bunch of random stuff. I think we're planning to do maybe a a, we're looking at doing like a caroling sing along later on in the evening. But there's going to be a lot going on. Your price of entry is really simple. It is for charity. We ask that you either bring a grocery bag full of non-perishable food items or a $10 donation at the door. All of this is going to benefit the HCHC Food Pantry in LA uh, to make sure that no one is going hungry this Christmas um, or holiday, I should say. Yeah, I hope to see you guys out. If you come out and I don't already know you, say hi. And It'll be fun. Give us the location, time and date. One so, more time. Yeah, so again, that's that is Sunday, December twenty second at Joe's Great American Bar in Burbank, California. The night is gonna start, six PM cocktail hour, seven PM showtime begins. And it's really kind of fun the way that they're setting it up is to be this like living room hangout vibe, but also with the variety show attached to it. Dress code is formal cocktail, festive holiday, Christmas character, or ugly sweater of your
0: choice. <laughs> that is a wide array of... <laughs> yeah. Come as you are, but come festive. <laughs> um, or- I am sadly not going to be there because I will be on an airplane headed to Florida. Which I will not be performing at, but... <laughs> I, You might catch me on the beach... Uh, attempting to uh get a skin tan get a tan what's that thing a skin tan yeah what did they give you you need? mean a suntan yeah that thing just just I say don't a ever tan. see
1: I don't ever see the light of day you basically are just trying to not be translucent anymore
0: yes okay <laughs> i would like to get a skin tan <laughs>
1: jeez louise
0: <laughs> there was somebody who was talking about how they went to they were calling a restaurant and they wanted to make a reservation, but they could not remember the word for reservation. So when the maitre d' picked up, they're like, I need to make a food appointment. <laughs> a food appointment? <laughs> Man. That's a skin tan. That's Man. All right. We digress. <laughs> well, since it's the season of giving, if you guys feel so inclined to, you can find us at patreon.com, which is uh, patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check us out on Twitter at rock and roll Lt. Our Facebook page is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. And TJ will post pictures of her cute little boy Hank with Santa and a flyer for her event that's happening on the 22nd. So check that out. Also, check out the picture if you've been hit by Wham Let us know or let us know if you're still safe from Whamageddon. I'm still not saying our website, or you can email us at at gmail.com. Other than that, Thank you guys so much for checking this episode out. I hope you have a safe and happy holidays. We will talk to you again next week. TJ. Yeah. I want nachos. Can I have nachos? I really want nachos. Sure. Sweet. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Miss